Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege to come and to look into your inspired word to learn how we should live among in relationship to you and one another. Anoint us by your Holy Spirit that you have given to each of us, the true teacher. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at John 7, verses 1 through 39. I'm not going to read for the save time, not to read all those 39 verses, because we're going to go over them, Siri Adam, so uh, we'll just dive right in. We got to remember uh, what has transpired as we look at chapter 7 here. Jesus has given a sermon to Jews, some of whom were, were called disciples because they were following him. We saw in the latter part of chapter 6 that there were many of those who were called disciples who were greatly offended at his sermon when he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They didn't understand what he was uh, referring to. Basically, you got to trust in me by believing in me. And it's through my body that your salvation is going to take place by redemption. So... We're told in verse 1 of chapter 7 here, it says, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee and spending time with the 12 disciples. And it says there that he was unwilling to go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And the first inclination that the Jews were that, had that much hatred towards Jesus, if you just Turn back to chapter 5, verse 18. You'll see the plot that was against Jesus. Like verse 17, he says, He answered, My father was working until now. I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself out equal with God. So the, the the two issues that these Jews had problems with Jesus was, and we're going to see, Jess talked about the hypocrisy this morning. We're going to see that hypocrisy brought out again this evening in John 7. So they're upset with Jesus that he had the audacity to actually heal a blind man on, on the Sabbath. I mean, how dare he do something like this? And then, of course, if that wasn't bad enough, the fact they were gleaming and understanding, he's he's uh, making himself out equal to God because he keeps referring to God as his father, and we know we know his family, where he's from. He's from Nazareth. We know some of his parents. Uh, Joseph and Mary, we, we know his brothers and sisters. What do you mean he's from God? So they're really upset with him. And uh, of course, now we're told in, in John 7, it says he wouldn't go up because they were seeking to kill him. Now, did that make Jesus afraid? Not in the least. Because he realizes, I mean, after all, uh He's going to be laying down his life for the sheep. He will voluntarily lay down his life. And even when he was on the cross, you remember that they came and they mocked him and then they were deriding him, says, you did all these things, you can't even bring yourself down from the cross. And that's when the scripture says, Jesus um, had said earlier, he says, Don't you realize I could call on legions of angels to come if I wanted to? So he is voluntarily laying down his life. The issue here is, in verse 2 it says, the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's why he didn't go. Now, it's not that he was afraid like we said. It is not his time. It is not the time has not arrived for him to voluntarily lay down his life. 
Now we're told that in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there real quick, um, verse 22, we, we see Jesus, what God, that Jesus' death was predestined, okay? Verse 22 of Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Delivered up by the predetermined plan of God. Now, not only did Jesus prophesy about his own death, he said he must, on other cases, he must go to Jerusalem. He must be rejected. He must be delivered up. He must be killed, and he must be raised from the dead. So the, the, the center in on that word must, it had to happen. You know, one of the sad things, this is just as an aside, and one of the reasons why dispensational theology is, is essentially bankrupt theology, and it was popularized by none other than C.I. Schofield in his, his Bible, is that he believed that it was never the intent uh, for Jesus to be killed. That was a plan B. It's, it's incredible. All you have to do is read what Schofield, what Lewis Berry Chafer said. It is a plan, a plan B? I don't think so. Not if you take the word of God as, as it says here. We're told, um, so in Mark 8, 31 and 33, that's where Jesus on other occasions says, it has to happen. But it's going to happen in God's timetable when God is going to determine it, not men. Which explains why on several occasions, Jesus just happens to escape out of their midst when they were trying to get him. Now, of course, Jesus knew all along what his purpose of coming into this world was. Again, when God revealed to Joseph that the child that Mary was carrying was a holy child and that he was to call this son who'd be born, you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the name. He is the deliverer. Jesus always knew that was his purpose in life. He came to do the Father's will. He knew ultimately it, it, at the appointed time he would uh, have to lay down his life. Now, Jesus, you know, it's interesting what Jess preaches on, uh, kind of dovetails always into this evening because Jesus had given that parable of the two sons, the, the wicked uh, husbandman, and that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they grasped. That's one of the few parables that God allowed them to see. They realized he's speaking about us. He's, he's casting rocks at us is what he's doing. And so we, we're, we're told here in verse 2 of John 7 that there was a feast of booths that was occurring in Jerusalem. Now, this Feast of Booths also is called the Feast of the First Fruits. It is a celebration done uh, to celebrate God's wonderful harvest that he has blessed them with. Now, it was done at a... uh, Numbers talks about it, and Leviticus talks about that it was celebrated on the 21st and 22nd day of the seventh month the Jewish calendar, which would be our October of the year. So Jesus, he's not going to go up to Jerusalem for the purpose because they were out to kill him and it's not his appointed time. 
But because he didn't want to go, guess what? Our text says his brothers, that means his half-brothers, they criticized Jesus for not going up. And the rationale, if you'll notice there in verse 3, his brothers therefore said, depart from him and go into Judea. Your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself and uh, to the world. So they're, they are critical of Jesus because you're, you're missing out on the golden opportunity to publicly say who you are. There's going to be pilgrims from around Judea and around uh, the surrounding areas that would come from the Feast of Booths. So why wouldn't you use that as an occasion? Well, we're going to see later. He will, but it's interesting that, um, that his brothers would have that attitude. And notice this. If you take a look, look at verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. These are the ones who grew up with Jesus. Now remember Jesus, the God-man. Never did he ever sin one time. Not once. They grew up with him. They saw their half-brother. Now who are we talking about here initially? Well, we're told his brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were called Jude. Now, two of those will write New Testament epistles, the book of James and the book of Jude. But there was a time when they did not fully understand and and grasp our half-brother is really the Son of God in the flesh. Now, they will obviously come to believe that, but not at first. This is another aside. It's interesting that Roman Catholicism, as you may be aware, they believe that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. Which creates a problem because the New Testament says he had brothers and sisters. But you know how they try to interpret that? Well, it really means cousins. Really? Well, exegetically, you can't get away with that. But they they got to preserve their, I was going to say, heretical view of Mary by saying, no, 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 no. It, it has to be the cousins. Of course, when you have a, a theological view that you want to impose on the scriptures, it doesn't really matter what the scripture says at that point. You're going to believe what you want to believe. And it's called, of course, eisegesis. Exegesis is the task of pulling out. It's the Greek word ek means out. You pull out of the text the meaning. Eisegesis, the Greek word eis means into. So it is reading into the text something. Needless to say, his brothers, they're critical of him. Uh, it would have been a great opportunity for him. To, to do this. We, so when, when was it that his brothers, probably his sisters, came to believe who he really was? Well, it probably wasn't until after we're told uh, there's evidence after the resurrection and right before the ascension because in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it talks about they had been gathered there by the command of Jesus to wait for the Holy Spirit to come to them. So by that time, uh, we, we know we know from Luke 24 that um, Jesus revealed himself to uh, certain disciples that were walking on the road with him, and they didn't fully understand the scriptures. The, the text there in Luke 24 says, he opened their eyes to understand And that means he really opened the eyes of the rest of the disciples to understand 
that all the scriptures was about him. Now, in this regard, keep in mind that you and I, none of us come to have an understanding of who Jesus is anyway unless it is revealed knowledge, unless the Holy Spirit teaches us. Again, that's why Jesus, when, when Peter affirmed, when Jesus asked the question, who do, men, who do men say that I am? Peter will speak up, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter. My father in heaven did. So if we're going to have an understanding, it's because of what God has done. And in this regard, um, we know that eventually Jesus will come to Jerusalem. Maybe uh, in the middle of the week, that festival was a week-long festivity. And they will come, Jesus will come in about the middle of the week there. Now, it says, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret, kind of sneaked into Jerusalem. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast. Where is he? So they figure he's going to show up. Where is him? Well, I mean, where is he? So that we can seize him. And remember, there was, they, they were determined to kill him. So we get this idea. You know, sometimes if a person hasn't read thoroughly through the gospel accounts, and know what they say. Some people that are just somewhat aware of what the Bible says, they get this idea because of what Jesus did, the miracles that he did. He healed all these people. He loved the little children, bring him to them. I mean, that people must have loved Jesus. Well, some, but most hated him. Hated the most loving man that has ever walked the face of the earth. Yes, they hated him. And we, we know that the people in his own hometown of Nazareth, when Jesus went in on, uh, into the synagogue and it was the custom to allow a man to read from the scrolls, they let Jesus read and he picked out Isaiah and then closes it up, hands it back to the attendances today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. What? What are you talking about fulfilled today? You cannot say this. This is talking about the Messiah. What are, why are you doing this? That's why this, in Luke 4, it says, they took him out to the precipice of the hill with the intent to throw him off the cliff. And you know, if you look at uh, Luke 4, it says he just kind of Went through the crowd and got away. Why did he get away? Because it wasn't his hour, right? It wasn't his hour. We know from verse 12 of John 7 here, there was a lot of murmuring going on. Uh, some were saying, well, he's a, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he's a deceiver. And uh, they, they saw him as a false prophet to be shunned. It's how they saw Jesus, many of them. In verse 13, um, no one, here's what was going on. No one wanted, it says in our text, no one was speaking openly for Jesus for fear of the Jews. In other words, no one was ready to stick out their neck for Jesus. You know what? This cancel culture is nothing new. <laughs> it was operative in the days of Jesus. They didn't want to be identified with him because they knew, those in Jerusalem knew that so, uh, the Jews, especially the um, members of the Sanhedrin, were out to get him, to put him to death. Now, verses 14 and 15 of the text says, all of a sudden, Jesus 
All of a sudden, he shows up into the temple at the feast of the tabernacles in the middle of the week and begins teaching them in, in the court of the Gentiles. Now, we're told in this section right here that the Jews, they are absolutely amazed at his teaching. Now, why were they amazed? Elsewhere, it says, he taught with authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Here it says they, they were amazed. Now, why were they amazed? Well, he's, he's not an educated man. In other words, he, didn't, he was not trained in the synagogues of the Jews, or they would have known about him. And in this regard, um, he, did, he didn't attend any of the rabbinical schools where you would learn about the Old Testament and everything. They knew he wasn't there. And this is where there would be a focus on the sacred scriptures, and they knew that Jesus uh, wasn't there. In other words, Jesus didn't go to, he didn't go to seminary. <laughs> so how, did he, how does he know all this? If he didn't go to our seminary. You know, we tell um, in the history of Presbyterianism, virtually all the uh, ministers have always been encouraged to go to schools like a seminary to study the scriptures. Uh, but even when we were in our old denomination, the RPCUS, we didn't necessarily demand that you had to go to seminary but you've got to be able to pass the presbyter exam. And you better know Greek and Hebrew. Now, years ago, our presbytery exam typically would last four and a half hours. That was a typical exam. And uh, what we're going to do now in Christ Reformed Presbyterian when we were in Vanguard, we had uh, a list of 120 questions that were going to be open book. Well, they're not going to be open book anymore. You're going to have to, somebody who's studying, going to have to sit down and answer all these 120 questions, 109 questions. And then you're going to have to demonstrate, you know, Greek and Hebrew. If you don't, you're going to have to be, uh, have someone tutor you. Um but we see here, in this regard, Jesus, he has this knowledge that is impressing them. And they realize, where, where, where did he get this knowledge from? Well, look what Jesus said, verse 16 and following. Jesus therefore answered them saying, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, that means God's will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus is saying, I may not be self-taught. I'm not taught by other men. I am taught by God himself because I came from God is where I came from. So not only Jesus says, what I am saying to you is directly because I know the Father and I have been divinely commissioned to say everything that I know because I'm in a relationship to the Father to pass on to men on earth. So Jesus lays down here a, a principle by which he says, here's how you're going to have to evaluate my teaching. 
If you're going to evaluate my teaching, you're going to have to have, you're going to have, to have the proper attitude. That's why he says there in verse 17, if any man is willing to do his will, there it is. If you're willing to do his will, that means if you are open and you have a desire to please God, then now you've set the groundwork to have understanding. So if there is a true desire to obey God expressed in, in God's word and uh, if you have that, that desire, then you will come to understand knowledge. You will come to understand that what I'm telling you is true about where I came from and who I am, that I really am the Messiah. We realize that genuine spiritual knowledge is the result of the teaching of the Holy Spirit. I know we've, I've had you turn to this passage before, but turn again to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to just a few of the verses there in, in John, beginning at verse... 18, 1 John 2, 18. Children, it's the last hour, just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have arisen from which we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it may be shown they were not among us. But you, see there, there's that, but you have what? An anointing from the Holy One. An anointing to know what? Well, he says, folly verses. Verse 22, who's the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. So he says, the only way that you can come to understand that I am the Christ come in the flesh is if the Holy Spirit teaches you that. That's the only way. If you look down verse 27, and as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you all things. Right there you have it. So th this ability to know who I am has to be from the Holy Spirit. And who is the one who creates in your heart a willingness to learn. It's the Holy Spirit. And, and so we see here, not only does the Holy Spirit lead us to a, to a knowledge um, of God, the wisdom of God that's revealed in the scriptures, but it leads us to an understanding of how to love one another, uh, which is an indispensable uh, prerequisite for mature knowledge. You know, Greg Bonson, <laughs> I have in my library a letter he wrote somebody in 1978. <clears throat> Only Bonson. It was a 42-page letter to someone. It was a masterpiece that I said, I'm going to keep this because uh, uh, we had it printed. My wife is the one that printed it out at the seminary because she knew how to run the offset press. His, his point was, he says, doctrine leads to godliness and godliness leads to proper doctrine. It goes both ways. 
And that's exactly, essentially what Jesus is saying. If you're willing, if you're willing to do his will. Now, remember, what is the, someone tell me, what is the essence of the law? The Apostle Paul brings this out. How is the law of God summarized? There it is. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. Paul actually summarizes it in Galatians 5, love your neighbor as yourself. So if you're willing to want to do the will of God, which is ultimately to have love characterize your life, then you're going to be in a position to understand true, genuine knowledge. And you will know where I came from and who I am. You'll understand that I am indeed the Christ. Now, verse 18 says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true and there is no unrighteousness. Now that is so important. Who are you trying to impress? A person, you know, a teacher. Are we out to gather a following disciples or out or are we out to impress or to obey the Lord? You know, the, bo- the bottom line essentially is this. Humility. See, a humble man would not be one who would go out to glorify himself, right? That is not a humble man. A humble man does not seek his own glory. Do you remember, um, let let me, if you want to turn there, I'm going to turn over to Acts chapter 20. And Paul is dealing with, talking to the Ephesian elders before he goes to Jerusalem, calls them out to Miletus, and he tells them, in verse 29 and 30 of Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, Someone finish it out for me. To do what? What does the text say? Right. To draw away the disciples after them. Just in my time in the ministry, the last 40 years, we've had to deal with some serious theological issues and presbytery levels and all that. And it's always a problem. Usually someone comes up, and and most notably in the theology of the federal vision, they think they have seen something that has been missed for the last 500 years. In fact, they said that. We have come to understand something that has been missing for 500 years. Oh, really? Of all the great men down through the last five centuries, that... You've got something that they missed, really. Well, what, what is it? And you find out, no, I don't think they missed it. You have misunderstood. And it comes down to wanting to have a following almost every time. And so that's a, you, you find out quick, sometimes in theology, who's being glorified here, man or God? Are you trying to get a bunch of disciples to come after you or what? You're trying to get a, a group to follow you or what? And Jesus says, no, a man, if you really have knowledge, you're not going to seek your own glory. You're going to seek the glory of the Father. Well, the, the, the problem with the Jewish leaders, again, as I said, he, he wasn't formally educated in their rabbinical schools. And in one sense, 
They were envious. Can you remember when when Jesus spoke, there were those who, who hated him, but then there were a fair amount of people who were impressed and who were following him. And one reason that scripture says that when they were seeking to kill him, the Jews were afraid of the people because there was a lot of people who revered Jesus and for them to make a move against Jesus, uh, that might not work out very well to them. They might be the ones ending up getting killed. So what we see here is that they were envious. You know when, I mean, Jess alluded to it this morning. You know when Jesus was brought before Pilate and Jess brought out the fact that they wanted, yelled out for Barabbas instead of for Jesus. You know, Matthew 27 verse 18 has Pontius Pilate saying he knew the Jewish leaders were envious. He saw it. He saw through it all along. Pontius Pilate, the pagan, saw that they were upset because <laughs> he was, people were following Jesus, not them. And so envy, envy was behind uh, their attitude. So in verse 19 of our text, Jesus just talked about the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees. Well, Jesus shows some of their hypocrisy here. Look at what it says. Did not Moses, verse 19, give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Then why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? You, you, you're not even doing what the law says. What did we say was the essence of the law? Love. Oh, well, what's in their heart? Envy that leads to to murder, the desire to murder. And <clears throat> they all along had been boasting that they knew Moses. Oh, you really know Moses? You hypocrite, you don't know Moses. Because if you knew Moses, you wouldn't be out trying to kill me. That's why he says, Jesus says, why are you wanting to kill me? He says here, in other words, Jesus, remember on several occasions, Jesus being the God-man, he reads people heart. He reads their hearts. He knows what's in their mind before they ever say anything. He knew in their heart was a murderous desire. And that's why he said, why are you seeking to kill me? And, and so and then... Verse 20, some of the multitude that's upset, uh, they agree with at least the, the Pharisees. Uh, they say that, well, you got a demon is what you got, uh, Jesus. And verse 21, Jesus says, I did one deed and you marveled at the one deed. In other words, I healed a man on the Sabbath. That's the deed that I did that you're marveling at. Now look at verses 22 and 24. On, a, on this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus was always getting the best of those that dared to challenge him who dared to try to trap him, always was getting the best of him. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it was to the point at times when 
Jesus would, as, would beat them at their own game, it says they never bothered to ask him another question after that because it was embarrassing to challenge Jesus. Now, why, why, how did Jesus expose their hypocrisy? Well, here's how he did it. Circumcision was required to be given to every male child on the eighth day. It started with Abraham. It didn't start with Moses. It started with Abraham. So if the eighth day happened to be on the Sabbath, then they would circumcise that child. Now, circumcision was a ritual cleansing, a ritual cleansing. And Jesus says, you've got no problem of being engaged in a ritual activity on the Sabbath. And yet you criticize me for actually healing a man on the Sabbath? They see how the, he exposed the hypocrisy in them? In other words, how, how dare you accuse me? You're the violator of the law, not me. You know, it, um, we know from 1 Samuel 16 when uh, they were trying to figure out who's going to be the king and, uh, of Jesse's sons, and Jesse paraded all of his sons before uh, Samuel and says, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, there is one left. You don't want him. He's the shepherd boy, David. No, he is the one. And that precipitates 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, the Lord does not look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. Now, these religious leaders, you know, he really brings out their hypocrisy similar to this in Matthew chapter 15 when they were criticizing him that he didn't follow, he wasn't teaching his disciples to follow the tradition of elders of washing your hands. And Jesus says, oh. He says, why, why do you violate the law of God by your traditions? Does not the law say that you should care, I'm paraphrasing here, your parents obey the fifth commandment? So what you were doing is that if money was set aside to give I'm going to put it in our terms, to the church and say, oh, but your parents, your parents are in need. You say, oh, I can't, mom or dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't give to you. I've got this Corbin is for the church. Jesus says, oh, he raked them over the coals. You dare challenge me over some ritual cleansing? When you have broken the law of God, the fifth commandment. But you see, that, that was their hypocrisy. They're upset. We're, we're already told that they were upset in John 5, 18 and wanting to murder Jesus because he healed that person on the Sabbath. And the fact that he made himself out equal to God, but it was both that they were upset with. Well, we're told... If it, no, it says there, it says, um, no one laid their hand on him again because it wasn't his hour. And, um, and then we see here, Jesus knowing that there were some who were sent to arrest him um, Jesus says in her text, you know, I'm not going to be with you for very much longer. And I'm going somewhere where you can't follow me. And they go, what do you mean we can't follow you? And he, look how he phrases it. Verse 28, Jesus therefore cried out. Well, let me back up. Verse 26 they realize that he was speaking publicly 
And some of the people said to the, to the Jewish leaders, you realize he has insulted you and you're letting him get away with this? You're going to let this man get away with this, insult you and embarrassing you, publicly embarrassing you. And it says here in verse 27, and they said, the rulers, you don't really believe he's the Christ. Have you come to the point that you actually believe he's the Christ? Is that why you haven't done anything to what he's publicly saying against you? And then Jesus said, he cried out in the temple. Now, if there was ever a time, remember, he didn't go initially to Jerusalem because there were those seeking to kill him. But now he's in the temple. He cries out in a loud voice. You both know me and know where I came from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. I know him because I am from him. And then it says they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But, but verse 31, but many of the multitude believed him. And we're saying, you know, when the Christ comes, there, he's not going to do any more miracles than this man Jesus has done. <clears throat> Therefore, we think he is the Christ. So you got a group that's upset, siding with the Pharisees that he can't be the Christ. And then you got a bunch of people who say, I think he is the Christ. Now, what, what's the operative difference? What made the difference between those two groups of people? Ones who believed and those who didn't. What's that? Exactly. That's why Jesus said in John 6, the reason there are some that don't follow me is because it has not been granted to them by the Father. Because everybody who's been granted to me by the Father, they come to me, and I don't cast them out. So the proof that you're one of the elect of God is you believe in me, and some of you believe. Others don't believe. Now it says here in verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him. The Pharisees sent officers to, to seize him. <laughs> and then Jesus says, I'm going somewhere that you can't go. In other words, I'm going to heaven, but you know where you're going? It's what Jess mentioned this morning. You're, you're going to hell. I'm not in hell. So you're not going to be able to follow me. That's where you're going but I'm going to the Father. So what we see here, these Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we shout? He said, uh, that's when Jesus said, you shall seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now on the last day of the feast, concluding that week-long feast, Jesus says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You remember, that's very similar to what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4, because he, he has her give him some water, and he says, you know, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Well, that woman will come to eventually believe, along with a lot of the people in that town. And he says... <clears throat> 
From within, there will be these rivers of water. And now the explanation is verse 39. But he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. It kind of goes back to John 3, when the Pharisee Nicodemus came to see Jesus by night who knew him to be a prophet of God because Nicodemus says, we know you must be from God because no one could do the works you do unless you are from God. And then Jesus says, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Of course, Nicodemus, it's going over his head. He doesn't know, what do you mean born again? I can't go into my mother's womb and be born again. Nicodemus, you gotta be born again of water and of the spirit. And the spirit acts in a mysterious way. He comes and goes just like the wind. You know, uh, Titus 3 talks about, it says, when the kindness of God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out lavishly upon us. So this imagery of being born of water is really an image of the cleansing effect of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's heart and then cleanses them of all their sin. It alludes back to Ezekiel 36. So here it is. Jesus says, I am that bread of life. Come down. You're going to have to eat of my my body, my flesh, and drink my blood. You don't have anything to do with me, which means you have to believe that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And the only way you're going to know that is if God has had mercy on your soul and enlightened you. So that's why we all ought to be very thankful that we, that we were enlightened by the Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus because not everybody has that same illumination that you and I have. And that's why we ought to always remember it's by mercy, it's by mercy, it's by mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Teach us to love you more and more every day. For the glory of Jesus, amen.